Thank you, Daryl. Please open your Bibles up to Matthew chapter 1. We're going to be looking at the text that uh, the Jordan just read for us a, a couple of minutes ago. And uh, we are going to be thinking again about this idea of the incarnation. You know, the, the, the issue, the problem that a lot of us have, you and I, who have been studying the Bible for a lot of years and reading it, is that we can encounter passages that can sometimes be really familiar to us and they, uh, or, or even special words in the Bible that can present a special kind of a problem to us. The problem is we've read them so many times or we've gone over them so many times that they tend to lull us to sleep. The problem is, is that we, you know, the challenge for us is that we really want to be able to go to God's Word. We want to be able to read it with fresh eyes every day and let it speak in kind of a vibrant, dynamic, powerful way to us in order for us to be changed and to be transformed, to have God magnified in our hearts. Now the challenge for us this morning is this passage out of Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, which is actually a quote from Isaiah 7. And this text says, The virgin will be with child... And she will give birth to a son, and they will name him what? Emmanuel, which means God with us. That word Emmanuel, I want you to circle it, or maybe write it down in your outline, circle it in your Bible. That is one of those words that tends to lull us to sleep at times because we don't realize that it's a stick of dynamite. It's meaning God with us is heavier than all the earth. And that's one of the reasons why we're going to be looking at it this morning. If we do not understand the doctrine of the Incarnation or understand what this name, Emmanuel, this ancient name, Emmanuel means, then Matthew's Gospel is not going to have the impact on us that it's intended to have. Now I'm going to give you a real simple outline this morning, just three points. And the three points are point number one, God. Point number two, with. Point number three, us. God with us. And that's going to help us to understand what the word Emmanuel means. First, it means Christ is God with us. That is, again, just touching on that doctrine of the incarnation that we looked at last week. Now, one of the things that the Bible just can't resist telling us nearly on every page, even when it doesn't do it directly, is this. Christ is God. Now, let me give you a couple of examples of how that happens. Over in Mark chapter 2, you're really familiar with the story of the, the paralytic who had some friends who wanted to get him to Jesus to be healed. And Jesus is in this house. It's in the evening of, of the day. And the, the courtyard is filled up. The room is filled up. And these friends of the paralytic want to get this man to Jesus because Jesus is not only recognized as a great teacher, but also as a great healer. And so they, you know the story. They go up on top of the roof. They open up a hole in the roof. And they let the man down in front of Jesus by these ropes. And everybody in that room expects one thing to happen. What is that? That Jesus is going to heal him, right? And what is it that Jesus says to him? Son, your sins are forgiven. That is not the expected thing. Now what's going on here? Well, well think of it this way. You've got Ben down here and you've got Steve over here. And these two guys are having a talk that ends up getting into an argument. And the next thing you know, Steve punches Ben in the nose and knocks him on the ground. And I'm standing up here and I see the whole thing. And I walk over to Steve and I say, Steve, I forgive you. Well, Steve and Ben, Ben's still on the ground, are going to look at me like I'm crazy, correct? And then Ben's going to say, how in the world can you forgive Steve? You can only forgive Steve if he punches you in the nose. Now that, friends, in essence, is what's happening in Mark chapter 2. 
How can Christ forgive this paralytic sins unless what He means is that every sin is really against Him? And that's what's happening here. And this is also pointing to the fact that Christ is God. It's an incredible thing for Jesus to be saying in front of all of these Jewish people. Only God, in their mind, only God is the one that can forgive sins the way that Jesus has done. And you know how the rest of the story unfolds, right? Jesus, knowing what's in their heart because they're struggling with this concept of Him being God and as God being able to forgive the sins. And so He says to them, which do you think is easier to say to this man, your sins are forgiven, or to say to this man, stand up, pick up your mat, and walk? Well, they understand where He's going with all of this, and they say, well, of course, Jesus. Saying that the man's sins are forgiven is the easier thing because you can't prove it until maybe the end of time. But, the, but saying to the man, stand up and, and take up your mat and walk away, that thing is discernible right now. It's provable right now. Obviously, it's the harder thing to do. And Jesus says, you're right. Now, to show you that the Son of Man has the ability, the power to forgive sins, he turns to the paralytic on the man. He says, I want you to stand up. I want you to pick up your mat. And I want you to walk and to go home. And it just blew their mind. Jesus had the power to forgive sin. Only God can do that. One of the indirect ways that the Bible is telling us that Jesus is God. Think about it also in terms of the worship that you find happening in the Bible. In Acts chapter 14, Paul and Barnabas are in Lystra. They've healed a lame man. And all of the people in Lystra have been expecting, they've been anticipating that there are going to be a couple of men that are going to come one day, someday to Lystra, and they're going to be the gods. It was kind of part of their folklore, part of their, their, their city legend. And then all of a sudden, here's Paul and Barnabas who have healed this lame man. And what do they do? They connect the dots. They think that Paul and Barnabas are Zeus and Hermes, and they begin to worship them. But then in verse 15 of Acts 14, we read that Paul and Barnabas are beside themselves. They say, men, why are you doing this? We too are only men. We are human like whom? Like you. Paul and Barnabas were not going to accept the worship because they were not God. We think about it even at a different level. When somebody fell, or came into the presence of an angel, they usually hit the ground, right? That's what happens in Revelation chapter 19. John is in exile on the island of Patmos. And he's in the Spirit one Lord's Day, and he's given this vision which he writes down and is passed on to us as the book of Revelation. But in chapter 19, he falls down in front of this angel to worship. And what is it that the angel says? Do not do it. Don't do it. Don't worship me. I'm a fellow servant with you and with your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship whom? The angel was not God, would not accept it. But then we come to Luke chapter 5. And here's Peter, who been fishing all night, hasn't caught anything, at least not anything worth keeping. And here the rabbi, this carpenter from Nazareth, has shown up on the side of, a, on the, side of the Sea of Galilee. And, and, and Luke records that Peter is getting close to the shore when he's hailed by Jesus, and Jesus wants to teach from his boat. And Peter doesn't have anything else better to do, and he's kind of interested in what Jesus has to say. So what does he do? He helps... Jesus into the boat, pushes off from shore a little bit, and he teaches the multitude on the side of the, uh, of the, side of the Sea of Galilee. And after the teaching, uh, Jesus disperses the crowd, and he turns to Peter and says, Hey, Peter, did you catch anything last night? And Peter says, Not anything worth mentioning. Uh, it's been kind of a rough night. We're a little bit frustrated. 
And Jesus turns to Peter and says, you know what I want you to do? I want you to go out a little bit further into the lake and I want you to let down your nets. And Peter is, he's been fishing all night. He's been listening to, to a preacher all morning. And the next thing, he's being told to go back out fishing. He hadn't had a chance to eat, even be on dry shore for, for a little while. Hasn't had a chance to eat, rest, anything. And now Jesus wants him to go out. And on top of that, Jesus is not a fisherman. He's a carpenter, now become a teacher and a, and a healer. And Peter turns to him and says, you know, we've been fishing all night. I'm a fisherman by trade. We haven't caught anything. I know these waters. I've been doing it all my life. But because you say so, we'll do it. And you know the rest of the story. They push out a little bit deeper. They let the nets down and out of the water comes this catch of fish that is so gigantic that they have to have other boats come and help them get it because their boats are in danger of sinking. And what does Peter do? He falls down in front of Jesus in a position of worship. And he says, Depart me from, from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. And you know what Jesus does not do? He does not say, Don't worship me. Get up on your feet. I am just a regular human being like you. That's not, what, that's not what Jesus does. Jesus accepts that worship. Now, one of the really big questions that, you know, regardless of where you stand on the Gospels, whether you believe them to be absolutely true or you don't, you have to answer this one big question. Why did those that, that followed Jesus and lived with Him in the first century worship Him and follow Him, and declare Him, and preach Him, and teach Him to be God. I mean, even if you're agnostic, or, or you're doubting whether or not there is a God, and you're having a, a, you know, a struggle trying to determine who Jesus is, you have to answer that question. The reason is, you know, the world is full of pantheists. People that believe that God was in the stone, and God was in the, the waterfall, and God was in the tree, and God was you know, in, in, in the gravel road. And the world was also filled with Greeks and Romans who were polytheists. And they had their pantheism or their, their pantheon of, of Greek and Roman gods to explain why the world was, was, was you know, the way it was, how it got created, what, you know, what uh, led it to be in the shape that it's in right now in the present. But the first century Jews read Torah. And they believed Torah. And they believed that the God who was the Creator was also the uncreated Creator. And one of the most unlikely things in the first century was to find a, 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 Jewish, a, a Jewish population, a, a, a handful of Jewish people who, who believed Jesus to be God. But they did. There was, there was something about the way that He came and the way that He lived among them that, that somehow matched up with what His claims. I mean, if you think about it, if you wanted to, to uh, convince somebody that you were a God, who are the last people that you would use to prove it? Is it not the people you live with? I mean, if anybody knows you're not a God, it's the people you live with. I mean, suppose you come up to Ellen, you know, sometime today, and you say, you know what, I saw Mark on WOAI the other night. He's standing out there in front of the Alamo proclaiming to be God, and I don't really know what to think. Is he a God or not? What do you think Ellen's going to do after she picks herself up off the ground from laughing? She's going to say, listen, that guy is not a guy, and if anybody should know, I should know, because I've lived with him for the last 30 years. The last people who would, ever, who would ever have believed that Jesus was, was God would be the Jewish people. 
And yet, they were willing to die for that claim that Jesus was God. And they, they saw a glory and they saw a greatness in His life that matched His claims. I mean, just, just for a moment, allow your imagination to kind of wander a little bit, to, to do what imagination does. And, and think, what a wonderful person Jesus must have been for people who lived with Him and saw Him in every kind of circumstance, saw every aspect of His life, and to say, you know what? He says He's God and I believe Him because I've seen it. But it's more than that. It's not just that Christ is God. He is God with, with us. God, with all of His majesty and His holiness and His dignity and His splendor, has chosen to put Himself in a state of withness. He is in a state of withness in the incarnation. He is with us. Uh, you, think about the transfiguration over in Matthew 17 for just a moment. You, you know, we, we have Jesus uh, being described to us in the Gospels, being born of a woman and all of the things that happened to Him as He lived. In Matthew chapter 17, we have a story of Jesus and a couple of His disciples going up on a mountaintop and Jesus' true self who He really is, his, his true glory from heaven comes shining through. And, and there is you know, Peter and these others who see Jesus for who He really is. Now up to that point, all that they knew was Isaiah's depiction of Jesus. Back in Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 2, he grew, up, uh, he grew up before Him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no what? Beauty. He had no majesty to attract us to Him, nothing in His appearance that we should desire Him. But up on that mountain, they see what the Old Testament said about the appearance of God. To Abraham, God appears in Genesis as this, this flaming torch. Uh, to Job, God appears as this tornado at the end of the book. To Israel, God shows up in this great white light that was known as the Shekinah. And it was frightening and it was scary and it caused people to, to tremble and to fall to their knees in fright. To see God as holy was to see God as frightening. And to see Him in all of that glory, I mean, without the veil, was, was to die. But that's the very thing that Moses wants to see. And so God allows Moses at the end of Exodus to see just the, the hind parts, the, the back part of God as He passed in front of Moses on Mount Sinai. And just think of this, so great was, was that glimpse of the backside of God's glory that when Moses comes down off of the mountain, his face is radiant. And they're, not, you know, they're no longer just afraid of the glory that's up on the mountain. They're afraid of Moses because of what they see of God's glory coming through his nostrils and his ears. And there's a time in which Moses has to put this, this veil on his face when he's in the presence of the people. So terrifying was that glory as before it receded. To be in the presence of God was terrifying. People would drop to their, to, to their, their, their stomach and bow before that greatness. But Peter and Andrew and James and John and the rest of those fellows, they're with God all the time. The God with us. The God that's in the state of withness. And Jesus is the one that takes that fear away in order for us to be able to come into God's presence. He doesn't come as a pillar of fire, but as, as a baby. The, the most vulnerable form of human existence. It, you know, it's not just God. 
It's not God is the Shekinah or the tornado or the cyclone or, 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 the, or the, um, the, the torch passing in front of Abraham. It's God with us. And if Moses had... had, had if, if, in fact, if Moses was even here today, not just in Matthew 17... But if Moses were, were, were there, he, and even with us today, he would be jumping up and down and shouting, do you know who this Jesus really is? One that got it was Paul. And, and Paul writes to the church in Corinth. He says, you know, God, the, the God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made His light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. There's a third thing though. He's God and He's God with us. But Christ is God who is with us. Who we are. He is not God with all. He is God with us. Which brings up a pretty tremendous question. I mean, who are the us in that name, Emmanuel? Well, think for a moment who Jesus chooses to come to, who He first arrives with. You know, He arrives, you know, the, the child of, of a humble woman who was, you know, considered to be a part of the, 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 the Jewish righteous poor, the Anawim. And uh, a, a lot of, of who uh, Mary is is seen in the Magnificat in the way that she describes her hope and the, and the dreams of her heart. It identifies her with some of the writings of the Anawim who, who were very righteous people but were very impoverished. And, she, and he, he's, he's being born to a woman who lives in Nazareth, which is a little podunk town out in the middle of nowhere just west of the south end of the Sea of Galilee. And maybe there were 500 people that were living there at the time. Nobody knows. But it, it, it's a town that really has nothing distinct about it except that people wanted to see the Messiah come from there. Thus, the name Nazareth is connected to the Hebrew word Netzer, which is the root that we find in Isaiah, the root of Jesse. And, he, and, and then he, you know, he's born on the run in a sense that he's in Bethlehem and not in the hometown of Nazareth. He's born in a stable. I mean, I don't know much about birthing a, a, a child. But at least you want it to be a little bit clean, right? Get those, I mean, if, I love dogs, but there were going to be no dogs when my children were born inside of you know, the hospital. And yet here are the cattle. Here are the cattle. And he's put in a manger. And then who are some of the first people to come and visit him? You know, when we think of shepherds, we think of really, you know, we, we think of good, you know, ranching people. We think of the salt of the earth. Back during the time of the first century in, 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 in Judah, shepherds were not considered to be anything but, but, but low lives. They were basically people that were not to be trusted they, they, they were people that you would never certainly entrust anything of great value to. You know, they were people that were not to be trusted. They were people that at times were very desperate. They were not to be considered a high-class educated. You know, in fact, uh, you know, if you read part of the rabbinical writings, the, the rabbis would teach that, you know, where you had two witnesses that would establish a fact in a court, shepherds were never to be believed. And not only that, there, there were people who came from wise men wise, educated, intelligent, academic types who came from a far land and traveled at great expense in order to see Him. 
Now, at, at first blush, you go, well, that's great. You know, you have the whole academy of, of, of the science and arts coming to see Jesus. That's not exactly what was happening. These are, these are men who have humbled themselves in, in spite of their great knowledge to come and to find a baby. Now, what does it mean for God to be with us? It means, in other words, God has come to be with the humble, to be with the poor in spirit. Look at what the prideful Herod tries to do. Herod does not want to give in to a little baby that might be a rival to his kingdom. There are no places in his heart for there to be a rival king. And so what is it that the prideful Herod does? He wants to try to destroy Jesus. And being thwarted of that, in his pride, in his anger, in his hubris, what does Herod do? He kills all of those small, those small male babies, two years and under, in the vicinity, not just in Bethlehem, but in the vicinity of, of, of that town. And those, those self-righteous Pharisees and those Sadducees who had made their alliances with Rome, they tried to kill him later in life. But to the humble, to those that are willing to become like a child, what is it that he offers? The kingdom of God and rest for, for their souls. Three, three real practical things to consider before we, we call it a, a, a morning with this lesson. You know, if, if God, if Emmanuel means God with us, and God with us means all of the things that we've been talking about and meditating on this morning, what should that mean for us? Well, number one, we really need to take the limitations off of God. Let me say that again. If Emmanuel is God with us, and God truly is with us, then we take the limitations off of God. You know, a lot of us here this morning have deep needs. And there's a lot of us who have bow our heads and pray. Father, we, uh, we have a concern that has, uh, has popped up in the middle of our assembly. Uh, we don't know the nature of it. Uh, we know that uh, one of our, our family members is, is, uh, is not doing well right now. And we know that you are with us. And you, we know, Father, that you are with us right now in this moment. And we call upon your power. We, we place all of our faith in you, Father, and we ask for you to make this thing that has gone wrong to be made right. And we ask you, Father, to, to, to give peace and to give joy in the hearts that, that are struggling right now. And we ask all of this in the name of your Son, Jesus, and all the church said, Amen. We have to take the limits off of God. You know, we have needs. There are those of us who have some habits that need to be broken. And the worst thing that has, has, that has taken over our mind and our heart is that this is the way that it will always be. I may be a Christian. I may be following the Creator of the universe. His Son is the Lord of my life and His Spirit is inside of my heart. But I have accepted that this thing that needs to be broken, this thing that needs to be done away with, this thing that needs to be carved out of my life, that that's the way that it's always going to be. This word Emmanuel, this name Emmanuel, means that we take the limitations off of God and we ask Him to come into our life in such a way that we are changed. Number two, how far are you going to, be, uh, are you going to go to be with God? It's a huge question. 
I mean, when you think about all of infinity that God had to claw His way through in order to be with us and what He has done for us and what He went through for us, how far are you willing to go to be with Him? I mean, God with us also means that a lukewarm response is, is unreasonable. That when you understand all, of, all, all that it means for the infinity to become finite and to die the way that He died after fulfilling all righteousness, a lukewarm response is unreasonable. You know, this, this past week there's this terrible tornado that passed through Indiana. And many of you heard the story, as I did, of the Decker family. 36-year-old Stephanie Decker is in the house. Uh, they have just moved to this part of Indiana where the tornado is going through their town. She is in that house alone with her two small children. The tornado is coming. She knows that it's going to hit the house or it's going to come very close to the house. So she wraps those children up on a blanket. And what does she do? She puts them down in the center of the house in the hallway and she lays on top of them. And she covers them with her body in, in that, the, the center part of that basement as the house comes down on top of them. And you can imagine what's going through the mind of these, these little kiddos as you know, the, the noise and the tornado and everything horrific is swirling around them. And they're afraid they're going to die. And, and Stephanie keeps saying to them, even though they're terrified, she keeps saying to them, you're not going to die, you're not going to die, you're not going to die. And at the end, the tornado passes through, everything is falling just about on top of this woman. The children miraculously escape unscathed. But she didn't. She loses both of her legs, one right there by the knee, the other one right above the ankle. And you have seen the images of how beat up this woman looks in the hospital bed. It you know, seems like TV cameras can get into anywhere these days. And even in one of the most intimate private areas, like a hospital room, they've shown us the pictures of this woman who heroically saved her children. And the father, beside himself because he hasn't, wasn't able to be there, looks to Stephanie and says, as he points to her, these children are here today because of what you did, because of you. There is a day where in our, our terror and our fear at the prospect of coming before God in His holiness, that fear is going to be taken away because we've been covered by Jesus Himself. And on that day, God is going to look at us and He's going to point to Jesus and He's going to say to us, you are here today because of Him. Ben's going to lead us in a song right now. And what we're going to do is ask you in, in any way to respond to the word that has, been, that has been spoken this morning. If you want to be baptized and have your sins washed away and commit your life to, to the kingdom of God and to be a member of the Lord's church and to find yourself a part of a church family and a community of faith that can happen this morning. We also have the opportunity to, to hear any kind of prayer request, a need that you might have that you would like for your shepherds to lift up in prayer on your behalf to encourage you, but also in the name of Jesus to ask God to bless you. You have the opportunity for that to be made known today as well. And we'd like for you to make those needs known to these shepherds down here at the front as we stand and sing together. Have you been